Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series, uh, and one that I am uh, very excited about. We are going to be looking together at the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Today, we'll be beginning in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is uh, principally about uh, Israel's return from their exile, uh, first under the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians are conquered by the Persians, and the Persian king allows the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and into their homeland. And so Nehemiah is about uh, the return of Israel uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, In uh, its partner book, Ezra has been about the rebuilding of the temple, uh, the republication of the covenant to the people. And then Nehemiah uh, is about uh, the act of really two people, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, in continuing to bring renewal to the people of Israel as well as building up the walls around Jerusalem. So the events take place around 445 uh, B.C., our book begins. But, uh, of course, we believe that Nehemiah uh, is about far more than that. Uh, If it were only about that, it would be maybe an interesting history lesson. Uh, Isn't that nice that those things happened back then to those people? Uh, Oftentimes, Nehemiah will be taught or preached as a book of leadership principles. Uh, And certainly, we will see in Nehemiah that this is a man of real wisdom and grit and ability as a leader. You can take leadership insights from Nehemiah. Uh, But we've titled our series, The Gospel According to Nehemiah, because we believe that as Christian scripture, Nehemiah is uh, about more than Nehemiah, Uh, that along with all of the books of the Old and New Testament, that it is a book ultimately about Jesus, Uh, that Nehemiah is a book not about how uh, God rebuilt and renewed Jerusalem back then, but a book about who God is and what he's doing in the world. He's a God that is bringing renewal. In a book about our place in God's plan, how he calls us into his plan of renewal and revival and rebuilding our lives, our churches, and our world. And so we are going to read Nehemiah with an ear open to hear the gospel, and eyes open to see Jesus who makes all things new. And so uh, let me invite uh, Kate Shell back up. It's the, uh, we're really leaning on Kate today. Uh, to, uh, to read the scriptures for us. If uh, you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. 
And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and it is given to us in love. You can be seated. How do you respond when you are confronted with the reality of the brokenness of the world in which we live? How do you respond when uh, the brokenness, the, the not quite rightness of this world is thrust on you and you realize it? You know, it's, it's possible for us uh, to live for moments, even maybe for stretches of our lives, uh, unaware, protected, uh, kind of buffered from the brokenness of this world. Nehemiah uh, was in that kind of place. Though uh, his people had been carried into Babylon in exile, though some of his people had returned back to Israel and to Jerusalem and were suffering and struggling there, things for Nehemiah, even in exile, were honestly not that bad. He was a guy, uh, in keeping with one of the patterns of the Old Testament, he was an Israelite who flourished in exile through his incredible wisdom and gifts, through his abilities, through God's providence. People like Joseph at the right hand of Pharaoh, Moses growing up in Pharaoh's household. People like Daniel and Esther in exile. And now Nehemiah. We're told that he was a cupbearer to the king. Now, a cupbearer is an interesting role. It's one that we don't exactly have a parallel to in our uh, present-day uh, political world. He was a combination of a sommelier, so he picked the wine for the king, but he also, because kings liked wine, he was around the king a lot, so uh, cupbearers also became advisors and companions to kings, and he tasted the wine before it went to the king, so if it was poisoned, he would die and not the king, so he was also kind of a bodyguard. So while his people around him suffered and struggled, things for Nehemiah, if you could get past the threat of poisoning, which is admittedly something to get past, uh, things were going pretty well for Nehemiah until we're told one of his brothers comes in and tells him this. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The brokenness that was already going on in the world that Nehemiah was insulated from comes crashing into his life, 
shattering the peace and prosperity with which he lived. And now he couldn't go back to not seeing the reality as it is. So how do you respond when the brokenness of this world shatters the illusion of peace and prosperity? I remember uh, a Tuesday morning when I was in college, September 11th. Uh, I had gotten up early that morning, which was rare for me in college, um, but I was uh, working for a ministry called Young Life. You, you, we're, that's a partner ministry of ours. You know that group. Uh, I was leading a Bible study that morning. Uh, if this marks something of a 20-year-old's life, I had eaten two Chick-fil-A chicken biscuits without any threat of gaining weight, and then I went back and went back to sleep because if you wake up early in college, life owes you a nap. And so I went back, uh, went back and went to sleep. And my roommate, who was a dramatic human being to begin with, burst into my door a little after 9 a.m. and said, Dave, we're at war. The Twin Towers have fallen. They seem something's happened at the Pentagon. Wake up. And because this is a dramatic human being, I didn't know if this was a boy who cried wolf situation, but I did wake up and go and uh, get to the nearest TV where I could watch and, and just watch as this unfolded. On our TVs, I know many of us uh, know and remember vividly where we were uh, on that day. I went to sleep living in one kind of world, and I woke up in a new world, a broken world, a world where something that I never thought would have been possible was now possible, that we could suffer this kind of loss uh, even in our own nation. All of our lives, sadly, are filled with these stories of where the peace of our lives is shattered by brokenness. It might be the day that the innocence of your childhood was ended by abuse, by abandonment, by neglect, by the cruel words of a classmate. It might be the day that the safety and intimacy of your marriage ended with betrayal or loss. It might be the day that your own sin, your own addiction was exposed beyond your ability to hide it. But all of a sudden, what had seemed tranquil and at ease is shattered, and you're brought uh, into the reality of a broken world. How do you respond? Well, Nehemiah uh, shows us a way to encounter the inevitable moments in our lives where we are confronted with brokenness. First, Nehemiah mourns the brokenness of this world. If you look at his first action here in verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Right, Nehemiah's first impulse, and we're going to get to know Nehemiah over the course of this book. He is a capable man. He's a man of action. He is going to have plans that he is going to get about doing. But his first response isn't to offer solutions. It's not to offer his resources. It's not to try to fix things. His first response is to sit and to mourn, and to fast. And the book tells us that he does this not for a few minutes, not for a few hours, but he mourns for days over what he has learned. Because he has just seen that everything is not the way that it's supposed to be. Look at what he learns. Uh, the words that are used uh, over the course of this chapter to describe the state of the people of Israel are exile, trouble, Shame, destruction, broken down, 
And then maybe the word that sums it up in verse 8. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. This word for scattered, scattered and exile come from the same root. And the idea of being scattered is the idea of being isolated. It's to be sent off and cast out from the intimacy that we were made to live with. You see, human beings were created to live in a relational world. We were made to live at peace with one another. We were made to live at peace with God. We were made for communion. And to be scattered is to live outside of that communion. And that was Israel's experience. Right? Israel, of all people, was made, was called to live with God in covenant, to live with one another in security and safety in their land. They were made to be an influence to the world around them, testifying to the goodness of God. And instead, they find themselves scattered, cut off from God, cut off from one another. They were forced to live in this place of scattering, this place of isolation, this place of vulnerability. And when Nehemiah sees this, when he hears of it, he mourns for days and days on end. You know, there's nothing particularly Christian about a naive optimism that slaps a smile on our face and pretends that everything in the world is fine. Right? We can often feel that way, can't we? That if we were, if we were really Christians, if we really had the hope of Jesus, then we would be hopeful, we'd be optimistic, we'd always have a smile on our face. Right? And there is nothing particularly uh, virtuous about being happy. Right? In fact, it can be a mark of foolishness uh, instead, of, instead of, of wisdom. Mourning at times is an appropriate posture for a Christian heart. Right? The Psalms where we gain our vocabulary, where we really learn how to live our life of prayer with God, are at least as full of laments and confessions as they are of praises. Now, often they move us from lament, from confession to praise. But it meets us where we are, that often in this life of brokenness, the appropriate and sane response is sadness, it's mourning. There was a uh, Christian leader, he's since passed away, a man named Bob Hepp, who founded a ministry called World Vision. Uh, World Vision works around the world uh, providing poverty relief in the name of Jesus. He was, among other things, famous for a prayer uh, that he prayed every day uh, that has since been written down and passed down. And his prayer was a simple one. It was, Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart. Right? God, break my heart. Help me when I look out on this world uh, for my heart to be broken by the same things that break your heart when you look out on this world. That's what's happening to Nehemiah in this chapter. He's, he's becoming aware of something that is heartbreaking, that breaks the heart of God, the scatteredness and sinfulness of his people. And his heart is being broken in response. Let me, uh, if I can, speak uh, of our time and our situation. You know, uh, we live today in an incredibly polarized age. Does anybody know that to be true? Right, that we live uh, in a day and age where we are at one another all the time along political lines. Right, and I have come to believe that there are massive parts of the brokenness of this world that our political affiliations blind us to. Right, there are those of us who look out on the world with blue tinted glasses 
And if you look out on the world with blue-tinted glasses, you, your eyes are open to see one sort of brokenness, right? You might be inclined to see things like societal injustice, economic inequality, systemic failures, right? And so your eyes see one sort of brokenness but might be blind to others. If you look out on this world with red-tinted glasses, you're going to be inclined to see things like the breakdown of the family, sexual immorality, abortion. Things like that are going to be, are going to, you're going to see them, but your eyes might be blinded to other types of brokenness. Many of us over the last few weeks have been heartbroken as we've seen the news of, of several states in the union advancing uh, their laws regarding abortion. And for some of, the, some of us, this has been a wake-up call. You go, man, we are, we, are now, we are the kind of people who live in the kind of world where now in some states you can choose to have an abortion right up until the moment of delivery. And for many of us, that has been one of those Nehemiah moments where a certain level of illusion has been broken. And you go, man, what does this say about us? What does this say about our, the way that we approach life and the way that we approach people? It's changed the way we view the world and our situation within it. I don't actually remember another time where this many people in my life were, were having this eye-opening experience to the brokenness of this world, uh, except for a few years ago. I remember in the, the string of events starting in about 2014, 2015, starting with the, um, the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, stretching on through several other police-related shootings of young African-American men. Where I spoke with other friends, predominantly my African-American friends, who said, I, the world is fundamentally, I feel like it's not safe. It's not safe for me. It's not safe for my children. Right? And so, and, and I'll, I will say that those are two, those in my experience were two largely non-overlapping groups of people that were feeling the pain of those two stories. And to, to pray the prayer, Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart means, Lord, break my heart, help me not see the world through either blue lenses or red lenses, to not see some sorts of brokenness and then sweep some sorts under the rug because it doesn't fit with my view of things. Lord, help me to see sin and pain and brokenness everywhere that it is, to value human life not because it's a part of my party's platform, but because it's a part of God's story, that every human life of every sort is of inestimable worth to him. And that every one of them is worthy of protection, of dignity, of life. Lord, break our hearts. Break our hearts with the things that break yours. Because here's the truth of it. Exposure to sin and brokenness only does one of two things to your heart. It either softens it or hardens it. When you see things that aren't the way that they should be, when you, say, when you see things that are wrong, your heart will either soften and mourn in the face of it, or you'll harden your heart to get through it. You'll say, no, I'm not going to feel that. I'm not going to feel the weight of my brother or sister's poverty. I'm not going to feel the weight of this unwed mother's situation with her children. I'm not going to feel the weight of the children that I, that I care for and that are in my life. There's all sorts of ways that we do this, but if our hearts aren't broken, if our eyes aren't open to see all that's in the world that's not the way it should be, we gradually over time become the kinds of people who are incapable of mourning, who are incapable of weeping, 
who are incapable of feeling the pain of our neighbors. Break our hearts with the things that break yours, Lord. Nehemiah was able to see the way that things weren't the way they should be because he knew the way they should be. Right after he mourns, Nehemiah gets about the business of praying. Right, He mourns, not cut off from God in isolation, but he mourns in prayer before God. And then he begins to pray the promises of God for this situation. Because he's able to recognize this isn't the way that it's supposed to be, and this isn't the way that God promised it would remain. Right, God has promised to mend what's broken. He's promised to be about rectifying what's wrong. And so if you look uh, in... <clears throat> If you look in verses, uh, verse 9, he says, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Right, Nehemiah knows the way that it's supposed to be. God gathering his people binding their wounds, making them whole, making them safe, protecting them. And he prays in that direction for them. So first, Nehemiah mourns what's broken. Then he owns the brokenness of the world. Look at what he prays in verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night and for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel that we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. He owns the brokenness of the world, he owns the brokenness of his people. Right, it would have been easy for, for Nehemiah to say, well, yeah, things are not so great in Jerusalem because those people in Jerusalem haven't done everything you asked them to. They haven't kept your covenant, they haven't prayed, they haven't kept the sacrifices. But what does he say? He says, even I, me and my father's house, me and my family, we are a part of the problem. We are a part of what's gotten us into this situation. Nehemiah owns it. In the process of owning the brokenness of the world, uh, in the Christian vocabulary is the word repentance. It's to say, I too am a part of the problem. I can't stand and throw rocks at the people out there who are the problem. Right? I can't be mad at those people out there because I have to recognize that I, far more than being a part of the solution, I'm a part of the problem. The Christian always encounters the brokenness of this world first from a posture of humility and repentance. Right, This, over time, uh, is, is what has made the, Christian, the witness of the Christian church somewhat uncredible to our world, is that we have been very, very good at pointing out sins that we perceive as being for those people out there before we've been open and acknowledging that we are the sinners. Right, We are the, we are the ones who have a share in the breaking of this world. right? Before we, before we rail at the world about the, the symptoms of sexual brokenness in the world, we have to come before and say, we are sexually broken people. right? Sexually broken ministers. 
Before we rail at the greed and injustice of the world, we have to say, you know what, I'm a greedy person. I am someone that cares far more about my bank account than my neighbor's comfort. We have to own it through the posture of repentance. You know, if you look at the way that God's renewing grace has worked throughout, throughout history, throughout the history of the scriptures, throughout church history, if you look at the great moments of renewal and awakening in the church's history, things like the first great awakening in, in the UK and here in America, every time that we've seen this kind of spontaneous expansion of the kingdom, many people coming to faith, repenting of sin, it's always started not uh, with the church pointing out the errors of the world, but the church being brought to a place of heartbroken repentance before God, praying, God, we need your grace. We are sinners in need of mercy. And this renewal here in the book of Nehemiah is no different. It starts as he mourns sin, and then as he, in repentance, owns that sin before God. And then finally, he mourns it, he owns it, and then he enters into it. He enters into the brokenness of the world. If you look at the, the final verses of this prayer, verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant, that's Nehemiah today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man is the Persian king. So Nehemiah, having mourned sin, having owned and repented of sin, he now says, I'm going to go do something about this. I'm going to enter into this, and he's praying God's blessing on his plan, which we're going to pick up next week. We're going to look at, really, uh, so much of the rest of our time in this book is going to be looking at what Nehemiah does, so we're not going to look too much at that this morning. But it is worth noting that he not only mourns it, but he looks at the resources that he has in his life. He looks at the connections and the access to the king that he has, the gifts that God's given him. And he says, God, I'm going to do something about this. Bless me in my efforts. Hear my prayer. Grant me favor with the king. And he goes about doing something about it. You know, Nehemiah, of all people, could have had the view that this is not my problem. Right? This is not my problem. I'm in the palace, I'm with the king, I've got good position, I've got the ability to influence things in Persia. That's their problem. They've got good leaders, right? They've got other people taking care of them in Jerusalem. That is not my problem. So I'll pray for them, I'll mourn the situation, but I'm not going to enter into it and do something about it. And yet God called Nehemiah from his position, from his comfort, from his privilege, to enter into a problem that he could have taken a pass on, that he could have kept at arm's length. In the history of God's redemption, in the scriptures and in the world, are full of stories of men and women who could have kept their distance from the brokenness of this world, but chose to enter into it, believing themselves to be called by God. Right, one of my uh, heroes, we're going to talk about two of my heroes in church history. One is a man named Basil the Great who lived in the 4th and 5th century. You may not know Basil. You may not know anybody named Basil. Um, but Basil was a brilliant man. He was a man who uh, believed himself to be called to be a scholar, who believed himself called to be a monk, and so he tried to enter into a life in a monastery where he would devote his life to the cultivation of theology, 
defending the findings of the Council of Nicaea in the previous century, where he would devote his life to the contemplation of God and the life of prayer. But God had other plans for Basil. Through some of his friends, he was called out from the monastery to become a minister and then eventually a bishop in a city called Caesarea, modern-day Turkey. There, while he was the bishop of Caesarea, he was uh, in charge of leading the people of that church, of that city, through the worst famine they had ever had. And so he built up there from his posture as a bishop. He built up a system where people brought their food to the church, where the food was then distributed to the poor, where he took care. Like Joseph in Egypt, people lived through a famine because Basil heard the call of God from the safety of the monastery into the nitty-gritty work of pastoring in the early church. He went on to develop the first hospital to care for the people who were the victims of the, this famine and the pestilence that went with it. We wouldn't have hospitals as we know them had Basil not heard the call of God to leave the monastery and go into the world. Another one of my heroes, and, and the heroes, this one, this one will be more familiar to you, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, our brother Martin, there's a reason we call him Dr. Martin Luther King. He had a doctorate. This isn't an honorary title that people gave him later. He had finished a PhD in theology. He had offers to go and take academic posts. He, this is a man who grew up in the crucible of the, of, of the South and all of the Jim Crow laws that came with it. He had opportunities to go and pastor large and successful and influential African-American churches in the Northeast. But he believed himself called by God to the ministry of racial justice and racial reconciliation in the South. And so he deliberately chose to not say, that's not my problem. I've got the education and the ability to distance myself from it. But he took it on himself. Nehemiah, Basil the Great, Martin Luther King Jr. enabled this, show us this posture of saying, I can't say that these problems are not my problems. To be in union with Christ in the midst of a broken world is to take part in the brokenness yourself. You know, there's a part of all of us that would like to envision ourselves a Nehemiah, one of the great rebuilders, one of the great leaders and heroes of the Bible. There's a part of us, maybe it's just me, that would like to envision myself a Basil the Great, not only teaching and leading and preaching, but also making real social change in the world. There's those of us who like to style ourselves and believe that we might be used in the same way Dr. King was. But the reality is most of us know ourselves. and We know how limited our resources are. We know that we seem powerless over the brokenness of our own lives, let alone the brokenness of the world. Right? We seem uh, more the part of the victim of our own sin and the sin of the world than we feel ourselves to be the kinds of people who might bring about this kind of sweeping change in the brokenness of the world. And that's true. We are, each of us, not most of us, removed at a distance from the brokenness of the world, but painfully aware of it. We are those who are suffering. We are those who are, who are struggling. We are those who know ourselves to be wounded and hurt. Far more than like Nehemiah, we are like those people living in Jerusalem with broken down walls, messy moral lives, in need of somebody to come and to help us. And these people in Jerusalem, quite unbeknownst to themselves, their situation, their plight, 
found the ears of somebody who could help them. Right, as they suffered, as they struggled, as they were, were, were vulnerable to attack uh, from their neighbors, with the walls torn down, their pitiful situation found its way to the ears of somebody who was at the right hand of the king of Persia, one of the most powerful people in the world. And our great hope as Christians isn't uh, that we would be like Nehemiah. It's not that we would be able to fix everything that's broken. But that our plight, our suffering, our sorrow has found its way to the ears of one who can do something about it. Through one far more powerful than Nehemiah. Though Nehemiah lived his days at the right hand of the Persian king, Jesus Christ lives his days at the right hand of God the Father. When our situation and our sin and our misery and our brokenness finds his ear, the scriptures tell us that he, like Nehemiah, prays for us. That he is a great high priest who brings our concerns before his Father and ours. Our hope is not ultimately in how we deal with the brokenness of our lives, but in how Christ deals with the brokenness of our lives. And in that, he is one that Nehemiah points us to, but one who far exceeds Nehemiah's abilities. Right, Nehemiah. Nehemiah mourned the brokenness of the world. He owned it, and he entered into it. Jesus, in the same way, mourns the brokenness of this world and of our lives. Right, think of Jesus weeping outside of the grave of his friend Lazarus, weeping over the effects of death. Think of Jesus weeping, looking down over Jerusalem and saying, oh, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her young and to hold you and to protect you. Think of Jesus weeping over us, over you and your sorrow and your sin and your suffering. It's often that we wonder in the moments of our suffering, where is Jesus in all of this? And friends, I want you to know that Jesus is weeping over you. Jesus is weeping with you. Your, your, your sorrow isn't hidden from him. Some of you, some of us, uh, really need to hear that. I don't know, um, this, this, won't, this won't hit all of you, but I don't know that I have been in a season as a minister that has been more bathed in tears in the last several weeks. Uh, I have wept uh, with you. I have stood and held some of you while you wept over the pain uh, and sorrow uh, that this world has held for you. And my tears might make you feel a little better. They might make you feel a little less alone and suffering. Uh, but they are ultimately not the tears that matter. The tears of your Savior Jesus who weeps over the things that hurt you, that weep over your brokenness and your sorrow and your guilt and your shame, those tears are actually the tears that have the power to heal. The tears that have the power to bind up what's wounded and to be a balm to you. And I hope that, that uh, there's comfort there. So Jesus, too, mourns the brokenness of this life. And then he owns it. He takes it on to himself. Now, Nehemiah repented of sin. Jesus can't repent of sin. Jesus is the only human on earth, the only man that's ever lived that can't repent of sin. But he does take on to himself, he owns the sin of the world. That's why he came, was to take all of the heartbreak and all of the rebellion and all of the brokenness and all of the sorrow onto his own shoulders and then to nail it to the cross, to suffer and to die and to rise again 
so that sin and sorrow don't have the power over us that they do in and of ourselves. So Jesus mourns our sin, and then he owns our sin. He takes it onto himself. And then Jesus enters into the brokenness of this world. Of all the beings in all of eternity that could have said, that's not my problem, Jesus is at the top of the list. Eternally begotten of the Father, living with the Father forever in perfect, sinless and sorrowless glory. He could have easily, as the world spiraled into sin and misery, said, oh, that stinks. I'm really sorry. I'd, I'd had better hopes for humanity. I'd hoped that they would have been better, been more faithful, been more obedient. Father, maybe we should start over, try again. But no, Jesus doesn't say, that's not my problem. He, he enters into the brokenness of this world. That's what the incarnation is. God binding himself to humanity, binding himself to us and our frailty and our sorrow and our mourning, taking our sin upon himself that he could redeem it. So friends, those of you who, like Nehemiah right now, feel somewhat distant from the brokenness and sorrow of this world, in a sense, thank God for those seasons where it's, where it's not in, intruding on you every, every moment of your waking life. But for those of you who know yourself to be in it right now, please know and hear that Jesus weeps with you. He has taken your sin, all of it, on himself on the cross. And he has entered into this with you and with us in the midst of the brokenness of this life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us alone in our sin and misery. You haven't left us alone with the mess that we've made of this world. But Lord Jesus, you, with your broken heart, has entered into it. Not only that, but you've taken it onto yourself with your broken body and shed blood. You, uh, more than any, know the brokenness of life in this world, having suffered as you have. Lord, help us in our sorrow to know that we have a compassionate high priest who suffered temptation and pain, to know that you weep over the brokenness of this world and that you call us as your, as your servants, as your sons and daughters, to take on our calling and to be with you a part of your renewal of this world and your renewal of all things. Lord, break our hearts where they should be broken, bind them where they need to be mended, and Lord, help us to find our place in your story. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.